Hello, listeners. This is George Cedarquist. Before we begin this week's episode, we want to acknowledge the legendary voice teacher, Marlena Mollis, whose death was announced after we recorded. We'll add our voice to her tributes next week. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh... Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. Okay, we go inside the huddle with Maya Karani. In addition to being a rare example of a soprano of South Asian descent who has gained traction in the largely white world of early music, Maya is also establishing herself as an advocate for mothers in opera. So, of course, we put the OBS mother in residence on this interview. And then in a new segment, we finally arrived at the centennial anniversary of Maria Collis's birth. So over the course of the year, we are going to count down the Collis 100. Plus, in the two-minute drill, it's another climate protest, this time during Tannhäuser at the Met. Come on, kids, you know the orchestra is already getting paid overtime for that show. Oh, wait, you're trying to bankrupt the company. Now we get it. <laughs> Make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Spotify, click follow, Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign, send us that voice memo, or email us your hot takes, mailbag at operaboxscore.com, or even just record your thoughts using the You Got Something to Say page on our website, operaboxscore.com. However you contribute, you're going to get the OBS Beer Coaster, the OBS lapel pin, and the all-new number one OBS fan foam finger just for sharing your own hot take. Those are going out to listeners right now. You want to be one of them. They are so utterly cool, I cannot tell you. But you gotta get your voice heard to get the foam finger. Am I right, mm. Oliver, or am I right? Um, yes. Um, and <laughs> I, I, I just wanted to sneak in really quickly here just to put it out in the universe that we need uh, a George Santos, the opera. Uh, but the, <laughs> the problem is, what fuck do you cast George Santos? Like, Countertenor? Oh, Contra? Uh, I think Countertenor is too easy. It's got to be androgynous a little bit, but clearly. Well, I, I think I think what you, you know? do is you have uh, you start off with with a tenor. And then you bring, and then like they walk off stage, and then you bring on a soprano, and then they walk off <laughs> yeah. stage, and it's a it's like a bass baritone, and like it's awesome. and every scene is a different. Every George scene Santos. is awesome. <laughs> but the but the Katara Ravash section that has to be the bass baritone. <laughs> Weston Williams, an amazing idea. Ashley Hardgrave, how are you? How are you dealing with uh, Florida State University's snub? by the NCAA College Committee. Selection Sunday was a real bummer this time around. I All I can say is, man, justice for Florida State. Like, they, they went undefeated <laughs> their entire season, went down to their third-string quarterback, won two non-conference games on the road, and they still got knocked out of the college football playoffs because there just weren't enough spots in the way that they have devised this whole voting system together. So it just proves that really valuable lesson in life that like no matter how hard you work or how much you overcome, and a committee of old white dudes is going to determine your fate. So uh, I would love to... Uh, Not yeah, unlike the, the opera business, I might add. Weston, just so you know, 
because you may not be following these things. <laughs> Michigan and Alabama are on a collision course. Oh, yeah. New Year's Day, 4 p.m., the Rose Bowl. Two will enter, one will leave. Yeah, I think we're going to have to be at odds on this one, George. It's going to be brutal because, as you know, born and raised in Alabama. My mother went to Bama. So obviously, I'm going to root for the tide. But fun as fact you that you might not know, George, is that my father actually went to Ohio State. So I have a lot oh invested God. in you losing. <laughs> How do I even entertain? How do we look at you once a week? It's because you're so entertaining. That's why. Let us talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Back in July, I think it was my good call, uh, the article that Corinna DeFinesca Bolheim wrote about mothers in opera. Uh, the name of the article is What Opera Singers Gained and Lost While Performing while pregnant. And it's a topic that, you know, we have been on motherhood here uh, for a long time now, thanks to Ashley. And um, Maya Kirani, the soprano, who is one of the, uh, she's actually the first interviewee uh, for this uh, New York Times story. And her picture is like on the cover of this spread, um, is a soprano that I've actually known since she was just beginning her career as a singer, as a specialist in early music. And so when this article came out and I, I saw that she was on the cover, I was like, holy poop. Um, and <laughs> she's exactly as I remember her. She's hilarious. She's as smart as a whip. And she's definitely taking care of herself. You don't need to take care of her. She's got everything under control. And she's a boss. Uh, and I'm just so thrilled that she was in Chicago uh, to sing uh, A Messiah, as one does, uh, with the University of Chicago. And I had this chance to interview her. And before we jump into the interview, which it has a lot to do with being a mother and with breast pumps and all these things. So uh, if you're a sensitive listener, uh, too bad. <laughs> um, we'll listen to uh, Maya singing uh, the aria from Rossini's Il Turco in Italia, arranged for a string trio, uh, the arrangement by Eric Zivian. this uh, really bizarro um, string quartet arrangement of you singing Fiorilla's uh, Ariette from Turco in Italia. <laughs> and you sound amazing in this. Uh, welcome to Opera Box Gormaya. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. So we've known each other since 2010. You did uh -huh. the research. Yes, yeah. 2010. Yeah. Amherst Early Music Festival. It I was my first ever thing really i was really? An, it was yeah i was an undergrad i was just coming out of undergrad i was not a music major i studied engineering yeah, that's i wanted to <laughs> i wanted to say that really quickly because the like the top comment on this video that i found of you um oh, no. from boston broke the top comment i don't is, read the comments okay it's is she real 
Indian American with Princeton engineering degree <laughs> and a voice like an angel? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Are you real? <laughs> Am I real? Oh my gosh. Wow. That's funny. Well, that's kind that's of sum- that summarizes. Uh, <laughs> I should put that in my bio. <laughs> I know. Is she real? <laughs> I'll leave it up to you. Okay. Oh, yeah, no. But, you know, oh. so I've, I've known you and I've, you know, I've always known that you've had like a, a great personality and you have a great like collegiality and people love working with you and you're hilarious. No, um, but, you know, I've just been watching your career like explode and when that New York Times article came out, the Corinna uh, Fonesco Volheim, Volheim, is that her name? About motherhood. I mean, I'm not a person who squeezes, you know, but like if I could squeeze, I would have let out the gayest squeeze when I saw that thing. <laughs> and, and we talked about it on Opera Box Score, but I wanted to give you a chance to expand a little bit more on what you said has become now your brand you're like the I know I guess I guess it has become my brand especially after that article came out um and it and it just fell into my lap um I'm in this mom group online called mm-hmm. momology mm-hmm. and um it's a Facebook group and it's basically mostly opera singers and instrumentalists and other uh, I think there's some ballet dancers but it's you know we sh- it's this community of moms and we share our our trials and tribulations of being mothers, but especially as it applies to the performing arts and the classical arts, because our lifestyle is like no other, you know? Um, And so I think that community has been extremely helpful for me. And so I got the opportunity through there, and they were looking for someone who was very visibly pregnant and who was going to be performing on stage. And I guess I fit the bill. Um, I was eight months pregnant. Singing. You were chosen because you were pregnant yes, for that. Yes. There was a French uh, Baroque opera you did. I mean, a, a Italian Seicento opera you did in France. Correct. A version of Orfeo by a bizarre composer. That Antonio I, Sartorio. There you go. Yeah, that guy. And you were cast because of your pregnancy. No. Oh. Okay. I was cast far before that. Um, okay. And then, you know, I we got pregnant and I told my agent, I said, e, you know, I'm going to be eight months pregnant. Hope they're fine with that. And she's like, ah, that'll, I think it'll be okay. It's France. <laughs> it's France. Um, and the director, uh, Benjamin Lazare, he was totally game for it. And then we just worked it into my character and it ended up being perfect because the character is out on way. She's this, um, I was singing opposite Justin Kim mm. and, um, he, uh, he was, you know, my strange lover, and he left me. He jilted me, and Your I, and lover. I, yeah, I know, right? Um, and I, and I travel across, you know, the lands trying to find him after months, and so it kind of worked that I, you know, he knocked me up and he left, and I come back and find him, you know, and I, and I ream him out basically, and it really, it worked. It ream, ream, yeah, ream, um, and and it, it, it just worked really well with the character, and the text supported it, and so we just went with. It um, and I think it made the character stronger, and so yeah, people thought that it was intentional or that the character itself was written in the opera as pregnant. So hmm. yeah, that worked. That does not always help in the, happen though, because um, you know there are many most roles. You know, if you're pregnant, it's sometimes it can be a challenge for yeah. the director to work with it. So well, I'm it happened to work. I'm. In your uh, hotel room as you are in Chicago uh, doing a messiah and like I'm like inundated with visions of your motherhood. <laughs> the There's place. just pump parts strewn everywhere. 
I have three coolers. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the glamour. Yeah, but that's the thing that was actually remarkable about this article. Uh, in that, and I'm the wrong person to be talking about this. I'm so sorry, uh, women out there, but you got me. Um, <laughs> that this article really is very honest about the physical part of being a mother and what it does to the singing body. Yeah. Yeah, I really like what Corinna wrote about that uh, because I don't think a lot of people give a second thought to what how the body changes and how the, really the instrument changes as well. I loved singing pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, it was one of the best things about being pregnant for me because I pretty much hated being pregnant. I know that's kind mm -hmm. of like a faux pas to say. A lot of people are... You know, oh, you it's think a like, miracle. Oh, it's Earth, <laughs> Mama. You're so radiant, and you know, yes, yes, yes. But it's it's it was rough. I had two rough pregnancies. Um, but you're a tiny woman, like yeah. You're what five two or something yeah. like that, yeah. yeah. And you probably five when you're not when you're not pregnant, you weigh like what 110 pounds or something like that, right? Come on, Oliver. Yeah, yeah. yeah. is that right? <laughs> yes, yeah, it is too. right. <laughs> well, I've known you. Like yeah. I remember you being like a little I was, thing. <laughs> I was even tinier then, but yeah. So I had terrible pregnancies, but. But the singing, like, I, I just loved having that extra, really the extra heft, the extra grounding, the extra support, something to sing against. And both of my babies, like, they would really, especially in the third trimester, react when I was singing. Like, they would kick and be more active. Um, so I don't really know if they liked it or not, <laughs> but uh, it was a really incredible experience. Um, there were vocal changes, you know, even on a... A lot of people said that my voice got richer, and it actually stayed. I think the hormones, they are sort of permanently altered through pregnancy. And um, so I, I love that. And my my rib cage had to expand so much to accommodate my belly, that, and, and my ribs never went back. So that has been an awesome outcome of both mm -hmm. pregnancies. I'm like, great, I'll just keep this forever because my clothes don't fit from, it's, it's my ribs that don't fit mm -hmm. um, and like my gowns that I used to wear just a few years ago. So When you were snatched. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you trying to say? <laughs> no. Um, so yeah, there's tons of physical changes, tons of vocal changes. And then, you know, mentally the the journey of motherhood and, and enduring that whole experience, I mean, it's changed me so much as an artist. So as difficult as it is to be a working mom and singing and traveling and all of the logistical challenges that come with that, like I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, I mean, I love my kids, but I also love what that the experience has done to me as an artist. So um, yeah, it's... Your second kid now is... Of still a uh, infant of yeah, five months, five said, month yeah. old, yeah, and you have yeah. a toddler, and I have a toddler, and so you are uh, still producing milk, and yep. you, and you know, when you're doing operas, like, have you found certain companies understand this better and like give you space and give you like time to like, yes, gotta take a break now, sorry, folks. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think um, I am not afraid to be vocal about what I need, and mm -hmm. I think a lot of companies, especially nowadays, thankfully mm -hmm. appreciate that. I haven't had a company yet that hasn't accommodated um, my needs, so I'll just tell them exactly what I want. So if you know. For anyone out there who's like, oh, I don't know if I should ask, if I should, I need a break at this time. and Just ask because a lot of times the administration just doesn't know what you need. Mm -hmm. And so I tell them I need this, I need a space, I need to pump every three hours or, you know, or when I was pregnant, I need a break at this time. And so 
Um, and and they've, everyone's been very supportive and really great. With my first pregnancy, it was during COVID, and um, I was in a production of Three Decembers, which was a a, a, a digital production um, at Opera San Jose, and Susan Graham was in it, and um, it was a really great experience. And that you know we had these long filming days and I would just be really vocal about when I needed breaks and um, and the company was more than happy to oblige. So just, you know, speak up. And I I think nowadays, uh, especially in the U.S., thankfully, and actually in France, they were great too um, about accommodating my needs. I've heard other things about Germany, but yeah, well, you know, I don't have that personal experience. You were talking about Three Decembers, and you were talking about Justin Kim, and I don't know who this Lazar director is, but I'm starting to imagine that like you have all this posse of gay men surrounding you, <laughs> like just adore you so much, and that's that's actually how opera works, folks. Like first the gay men have to like you, then you make it big. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Lazar, I feel like you do know who he is because okay. you know there's that production of Bourgeois Gentilhomme on YouTube with Le all Point the Marmonique? candles. La Pointe Marmonique, yeah, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's he directed that's, that. He directed okay. that. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I he's like him. a Baroque gesture queen and just incredible, mm, absolutely incredible. Said all my trigger words. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you have worked a lot in Europe, and uh, you're an American. Even though that you know people look at you, and because people are racist, they don't think of you immediately as American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I have two questions about that. Um, there are, in my opinion, few Americans, fewer Americans who break out in the highly stylized broke world uh, because we're just not generally trained how to do those unique styles, those very specific styles. Obviously, there are exceptions like Justin Kim. And, you know, all the people that go through Boston Early Music Festival. Sherazad. Yeah. 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 Sherry. Yeah. But um, can you first talk about being an American in Europe who are doing these very specialized uh, styles of music, especially uh, you're doing Seicento and that uh, Orfeo you just talked about and... And you were invited to sing in a big French Baroque opera recently, even though you didn't accept the contract. Uh, so people must know that you can do these things. Yeah, I think I just learned by by doing. Um, I I do have a music degree. I went to I did in my master's in vocal performance at the San Francisco Conservatory. And Are you real? <laughs> I'm real. But I, I I and it was a, it had a great Baroque ensemble. Um, but we didn't really do any Seicento. Uh, and I feel like I just sort of learned on on the job uh, from colleagues and productions that I've gotten to be a part of. Um, honestly, I learned a lot about gesture at Amherst Early Yay! Music Festival in 2010. Good. Oh, um, that was with Jennifer Griesbach, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, who was fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I, I went to Princeton for undergrad, oh. and so Wendy oh, Heller's did, did there. Did you know Arya? We did okay. not overlap. He. Okay. He entered like right after I graduated, okay. but we are good friends and okay. we did early music Vancouver's break. Oh, uh, yeah, broke with Ellen Hargis. With okay. Ellen Hargis. Yeah. So I learned a lot from that. So I just kind of like cobbled together this knowledge um, through experiences and through these workshops. When so I was pay to sings actually work. Well, I think pay to sings from the Baroque world yeah. work yeah. Um, because there's not, as you said, there's not a lot of training for that here. Yeah. Um, well, now they have that fancy program at Juilliard or whatever. You know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I don't think existed when. Yeah. When I was coming up. Um, and I certainly wasn't good enough to get in. So, <laughs> but um, I, I think like, and then I went and I did this uh, a Popea at X mm. in two, 2022 last year. And we that didn't have any gesture, but in terms of 
musical style, Seicento style, um, I learned a ton from uh, Alarcon. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just being with that band, I mean, they they live and breathe this mu- music mm-hmm. and they've just been, you know... You were Drusilla, right? Drusilla okay. and Fortuna, yeah. Um, and just the continual was so rich and inventive and mm-hmm. the way that they would improvise and ornament, like I just picked up so much from that um, and from Alarcon and... Just applying that, like that helped me, I feel like, a lot uh, doing more Seicento repertoire. And but do you notice when you're doing these gigs, when you've done these gigs, that there aren't a lot of Americans around? Weirdly, that Popea had like four Americans. Okay. But that was odd. Yeah. Um, and in uh, this Sartorio, mm-hmm. uh, it was just me and Justin okay. who were the Americans. I'm just trying to get confirmation. Oh, and Zach I, Wilder. You oh, know Zach. Zach of course. Well, he's yeah. French now. But he's, so. <laughs> so is Justin, I guess. I'm trying to get confirmation because I, I feel like I've, throughout the years, I've discovered this, that Americans come with this sort of American work ethic and with this bel canto technique, but they don't usually come with like the style. And like the European colleagues you have come with all the style and all of like the self-confidence, but might not have like the technical ability. I think that's a a fair representation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those of us who specialize in this repertoire have had to really seek it out, Mm -hmm. seek out the knowledge, seek out the coaches, Mm -hmm. um, these specific training programs and, and just sort of glean that knowledge in bits and pieces as we go Mm -hmm. and learning from colleagues, learning from these European colleagues who've been doing it forever, you know, um, and, and YouTube. (laughs) Okay. So here's the difficult question because I don't want to imply that you're not, delivering the goods because you clearly are but you are a ravishingly beautiful highly melanated woman <laughs> um is has that been a benefit for you or has that been in a way an obstacle hmm, i think it's a double-edged sword mm-hmm. uh I, I i think some i there has been a push now for more diversity on stage which mm-hmm. i wholeheartedly agree with and i think some opportunities have come my way because of that so um you know, I don't want to minimize that. But I think, especially in early music, it's really white. Mm-hmm. It's super white. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> it's super old and it's yeah. super male. Um, and so, you know, as someone who's younger, quote unquote, mm. I guess not anymore, but, you know, and I'm a brown South Asian woman and it's been, um, it is challenging to break in. And, you know, we worked together 13 years ago and I just sort of, twiddled my thumbs and worked on my technique for nine of those years. And only now recently have I been able to break through and um, and I'm on these call lists for these conductors. Because the thing in early music is, and you know this, there aren't really auditions. There's like, no, do you know? yeah. no open calls. There's not, I mean, it's just getting in with these conductors and then they bring their singers around everywhere, which can be great if you're on their list. Mm-hmm. But Breaking in is something else in early music. And, um, you know, I got a, I have great management and they've really helped me sort of get in front of some conductors. But it is a challenge and it's it's such a black box. It's just so closed off, this world. Um, and I think that that's something that we all need to work on in the early music industry to, to break down those barriers. I was talking to, you know, Vijay Chalasani? Mm-hmm. So... Baroque violist. We both went to conservatory together. He is also... In Montreal? Uh, yeah, he's okay. in... Yeah. Well, we went to San Francisco together, okay. but he's in Montreal now. No, I think. 
somewhere in Canada. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's in the <laughs> Sorry, boondocks. Sorry, <laughs> um, But we run a group for South Asian artists, uh, mm. classical musicians. Um, and he's also, you know, an early music guy. And his he, he is called for open auditions in the early music world. And I think that that would help to break down some of these these barriers and to entry for us. Um, because these connections, man, they it's all about connections. It's all about connections everywhere, but especially in early music. Um, so now I'm on these like conductors lists and, and that feels great and that's good. And I hope that other uh, more diverse artists can yeah. can come through as well. I mean, do you want to plug this uh, South Asian group so that people can find it? Oh, it's no, it's just a, it's a Facebook group. Okay. It's South Asians and Western classical music. So okay. just you know, send us a little request yeah. to join. Prove, if pr- you... Show your South Asian card. Yeah, like. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, we're not super active, but it's a, it's a great community. And I think I, it's funny because whenever I, okay, so I have a diatribe about Messiah because. Messiah, I did my very, very first Messiah in 2021, two years ago, at Boston Baroque. That was my first Messiah ever. And until that point, I had never been hired for a Messiah, which is kind of crazy and ridiculous because it's my bread and butter repertoire. Um, And so that opened a lot of doors for me. But it's one of those things, like if you don't grow up in a church um, and... You know, you don't have the opportunity. You don't know the conductors. It's really hard to get those gigs and to be on that circuit. And Messiah is one of those things that it's so popularly programmed, right? It is everywhere. And a lot of people, they like to hire singers who've done it before. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that's specifically difficult to break into, but also provides a lot of mileage for the rest of your career Mm -hmm. not only financially but it's so visible right it's the one concert that like everybody goes to so in terms of exposure too, the exposure bucks that pay so much it is it's critical for like a handle singer's career um and whenever i see these messiah announcements it's and i see the soloists and they're they're all four white i think to myself what a missed opportunity Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's because of, of of the power of the piece, not just, you know, musically and emotionally, but for a career, for, mm-hmm. for an early music singer. So I guess I would just say that, you know, for people who are in charge of hiring soloists for Messiah, I think it's one of those things that we should be prioritizing. There's your chance to like, if you need to yeah. diversify and you don't have yeah. that many opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so, yeah, that's what I think. So um, thank you to Boston Baroque for taking a chance on me, on my yeah. first Messiah ever that well, was broadcast worldwide. Oh. How did you meet James Kallenbach, who is a noted, notable uh, composer uh, who happens to conduct the Messiah that you're singing tomorrow as we record? I actually have never worked with him before. Okay. So um, just met him yesterday, but he's wonderful. Great, great conductor. And uh, I, I don't know how... How he found you? How he found me. Okay. But I wonder who actually hired you. I, I feel like it was him because he spends a lot of time in Boston. So I wonder if he like... Maybe. Yeah. yeah. No, so it's I great. Gotta, I got to get that brown girl. <laughs> actually, this Messiah is great. This there's, is like 75% brown. It's 75% brown. <laughs> it is. It is Leah Dexter and Jonathan Woody as well. But uh, Matt Dean is the tenor. Yeah. And he's amazing too. He's so. white. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's a friend of mine. I love him. Yeah, yeah. Um, just because I always want to remind the audience that this conversation exists, but I spoke to Yeston Davies about how he balances uh, concert work with opera work. And he says it's important 
to take those concert gigs because they're shorter. You're, you know, getting your name out there as somebody who will sing a B minor mass or who will sing mm -hmm. a Messiah. And the people don't for, won't forget to include you on those lists. But if you like stick with opera, you know, you're in like a cave for like six weeks at a time yeah. and you could miss an opportunity to do a concert, which is actually easier for a home life and easier for, you know, rehearsal schedules. There's no staging, you know. Uh, have you tried to factor some of that into your schedule? Absolutely. Um, I just had a conversation with my agent actually about sort of in this season of my life, prioritizing mm -hmm. concert work, even though I dearly love opera, I love mm -hmm. acting, I love the theatrical aspect of it. But just logistically, it's just so much easier with my two littles to just be gone for three days um, and not have to travel with them and find accommodation for six weeks in the middle of nowhere. And so uh, it's something that works a lot better for my stage of life. And, um, and I love doing it. I love singing concert work. And I think it can be, it should be highly dramatic because it's, it's at the end of the day, storytelling. I mean, even a B minor mass and even, you know, it needs to be, um, we got to hold the audience's attention. So yeah, give them a show. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I agree with Yeston. It's, it's, you got to be able to balance both. And, and at this time I'm like trying to skew a little bit more concert for this stage of my life. We'll mm -hmm. see if that changes. Um, you got to buy new gowns now that you have bigger ribs. Oh my God. <laughs> literally. No, I, I just gave away like tons of gowns. I was like, I don't have the bandwidth to sell all of these. So I just did like a big prom giveaway to my neighborhood of all my like size zero gowns, which I will never fit into again. A prom all, all the tweens were very excited. <laughs> Nice. There's going to be a bunch of girls at their high school prom. They're like dressed like opera singers. I, <laughs> I, I accept zero responsibility. <laughs> okay, Maya, thank you so much for coming to Opera Box Score. Yeah, thank you. Just a little bit of Maya's Rejoice, uh, that from the Boston Baroque in, I want to say, 2021. Uh, my thanks once again to Maya Kirani for being such a fabulous guest on Opera Box Score. May I have your attention, please? This is the Callous Countdown to 100. So over the weekend, we finally made it to Kalas 100, and now we are in <laughs> the centennial year. We can celebrate the great Maria Callas until December 2nd, 2024. There's already, um, what do you call this, backlash or overload? People are already like... Uh, <laughs> uh, all, all the uh, all the people who've been celebrating uh, George Ligeti 100, <laughs> like me, are, are super mad yeah. about it. But we are just beginning our own celebration. And over the course of this year, we want to give you, our level, our beloved audience, 100 great 
colors, fill in the blanks, things, images, videos, anecdotes, quotes, uh, career events, factoids, um, anything we can think of that to get to 100 deliverables for you so you can understand why Kalas is so great. And we're going to start with item number 100. I'm going to pass it over to Weston. Well, I mean, I should say, first of all, I was uh, raised uh, by uh, by a family that was still in the throes of the great uh, Kalas as 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 a rival to various singers throughout her career. We, I was raised in a Joan Sutherland family, uh, mm. and, and so I was raised a lot of disparaging um, um, remarks. So this one, this new segment is going to be as much to convince me as any anything else. But I did want to start with you know just some of the basics. You know, just start at the very beginning. I hear it's a good pr- place to start. Um, she was born, here's the number one fact that we're starting with. She was born December 3rd, 1923, uh, in New York City as Maria Anna Cecilia Sophilia Kalogaropoulos. So obviously she ended up shortening that name a little bit. Uh, and now, of course, we know her as the, the great, great Maria Callas. Uh, her mother, uh, who was known as uh, Lista, even though her full name is Elmina Evangelia, uh, Evangelia uh, expected to have a boy. And she was actually so disappointed that Maria was a girl that she didn't look at her for days after she was born. Uh, interestingly enough, she was the one who was into the arts in the family. She was the... Uh, uh, her mother, I should say, was the one who's really into the arts, really into the music, really into the social aspects of of the arts, which would become very uh, pertinent to Maria's own life. And we're talking a lot about the gossip later on, uh, which is, uh, I'm sure, what a lot of people are tuning in for to this segment. Um, uh, however, her <laughs> father, George, had no interest in the arts whatsoever. Could That's not me. care less. That's George. <laughs> and George Cedarquist was her father. No, that's not a fun <laughs> fact. It's a fun lie. Uh, but I just want to start at the very beginning. You know, she started off just like anyone else, just a, a, a born to immigrant parents in New York City with very little to her name. And uh, there was no indication at the very beginning that she would become probably the most influential and recognized uh, voices and figures in opera history. But I think we're also, by, by learning this information, we're creating the formula for how you create the next Kalas. So right. wish wish for a boy. Put it all into a box. Get, and get, get can... a, have, give birth to a girl instead and ignore her for the first couple of days. <laughs> it works every of, time. Every psychologist will tell you this, this is how you produce a great diva. Okay. So item number 100 is just a little bit of trivia about Kalas, including... Her full name, like Tobias, uh, what is Tobias' middle name? I forget when when Matt uh, Tobias named, dead to us, right? <laughs> when Matt full named Tobias out of anger, that was a great moment in <laughs> Opera Box Score history for you longtime fans. Okay, so item number ninety nine is going to jump all the way to nineteen seventy one for the famous series of masterclasses that she gave at Juilliard. And there's actually a book that I love referring to if you ever like are studying an aria and you want like some cool coaching tips. Uh, you learn that Maria Callas really was such a great musician and respected the composer's intentions so much. And uh, during these master classes, she covered, you know, all Fox basically. And there was a baritone named uh, Song Kil Kim who sang uh, Cortigiani from Rigoletto. And just as a quick reminder what Cortigiani is, 
Uh, this is in the uh, the palace of the Duke. Uh, Rigoletto is like coming to work, knowing that his daughter was abducted uh, by the courtiers and is probably in the middle of being assaulted by the Duke himself. And he comes onto the scene and first he's like playing it cool. Like, you know, he can handle the joke. Okay, ha ha. Now, where's my daughter? And when he realizes they're not going to budge, he, you know, launches into this like rage aria, desperation. And we're going to hear Maria Callas sing Cortigiani. For my money, that is some of the most dramatic singing. I mean, I love that aria, and we've heard the great baritone sing it, but just how she deploys her chest voice, how she goes for some of that declamatory singing, it sounds so desperate and so tragic. And that poor baritone who <laughs> cannot compete. <laughs> well, he must have He's been. Doing his best. Assume, yeah, he was, yeah. <laughs> But uh, no, that to me is, uh, I mean, I would love to hear her sing the entire role of Rigoletto. And next we move into, what is this, 97? Is that where we're going? 98. 98, 98. Yes, sorry. I can't count, guys. I have two degrees in music. Um, at any rate, <laughs> so one of the things that we wanted to to mention are sort of the big six that happened here uh, in Chicago. So between, you know, the, the brand new lyric uh, during the seasons for 1954 and 1955, she did... Six roles straight through. Absolutely insane. Norma, Tra- Norma Traviata Lucia in 54, and in 55, Puritani, Trovatore, and Butterfly, which incidentally would be the only full butterflies that she would ever do. Mm. Uh, and so there's some really interesting, we got to have fun with microfiche a little bit earlier where, uh, <laughs> where Oliver did a little bit of research into, it was the New York Times, right? That gave the review of the, of of her uh, opening night of fifty five season, which was the which was the Puritani, uh, and she came out to rave reviews as the makings of a brand new prima donna, and uh, it's it's a really interesting you know sort of series that she did all of these things back to back to back to back to open this house when she was still sort of a a younger oh let's talk a little bit about this singer that these audiences don't yet really know uh, and. It was really wonderful because she did all of these back to back, but those were kind of the only things she did here in Chicago for a very long time. She she did those two seasons, and then she only came back to Chicago like three times in total before her death in in uh, the late seventies. I had the chance to be part of a really awesome event, which was a Callis in Chicago concert that was put on by the Newberry Library here 
uh, many moons ago. And I think it was for I think it was for her 80th birthday year. Now that I'm thinking about it, it was Collis turns huh. 80. And so what they did is they had singers represent each of these big six roles that she did between the 54 and the 55 seasons. And so uh, I got the chance to sing Qui La Voce in honor of her Puritani. And I believe we're going to hear a little bit of that right now. Is that right, Oliver? Yeah, so we're just talking about her Ipuritani, and we'll talk about this. Well, I thought we were going to hear Ashley singing it. <laughs> but uh, she was she was 31 years old when she sang Puritani in Chicago. That was in 1955. We're going to hear same era Kalas a little bit earlier in the career from the studio recording uh, from 1953. So there you have it, our first installment of the OBS Counts Down Kalas 100. Uh, if you have your own favorite moment, favorite recording, favorite anecdote, favorite quote, Bring favorite it. picture, uh, please do not hesitate to... Because we go. have a lot to get through and we don't want to run out of ideas before <laughs> next year. <laughs> Use the You Got Something to Say page on our website at operaboxscore.com. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opperland this week. The opening night of Tannhäuser at the Met was interrupted by climate protesters' Extinction Rebellion, shouting, Wolfram, wake up, the spring is polluted, and unfurling posters that read, No Opera on a Dead Planet. The protest brought the performance to a standstill twice, adding 22 minutes to the already hefty runtime. After the second interruption, Peter Gelb instructed the crew to finish the opera with house lights on at 25% for security reasons. In other Bachner news, the Bayreuth Festival announced it will cut its chorus by 40% next year from 134 to 80 members, citing financial difficulties and a stagnation in the amount of funding from the government. The festival also expects donations from the Friends of Bayreuth to drop by a million euros next year. Herbert von Karajan is cancelled, or at least his statue is. Peter Aachen in Germany took down a bust of the conductor due to his ties to the Nazi party during World War II. The theater was an early career maker for Karajan, and the conductor was the organization's music director from 1935 to 1942. The bust will be replaced by a statue of the less problematic Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. 
Out Here Music has acquired Delos Classical Music Catalog, presumably thwarting Apple Music's takeover of the entire classical recording industry. <laughs> the Delos label was founded in 1973 and was one of the first companies to embrace digital recording technology. Out Here Music is a Belgian company that hopes to ramp up new recordings under the Delos name and increase the label's footprint in Europe. Congrats to the 2023 Kennedy Center honorees. President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden attended the honoree gala to celebrate comedian Billy Crystal, the Bee Gees' Barry Gibb, rapper and actress Queen Latifah, singer and everybody's auntie Dionne Warwick, and that singer you hear about sometimes on this show, Renee Fleming. In Dollar Dollar Bill's news, Long Beach Opera has received the single largest gift in the company's history of $1.25 million from the estate of longtime board member Carol Richards. Additionally, Santa Fe Opera has received a $1 million grant from hashtag Start Small to support its active learning through opera, or ALTO, program for in-class outreach. See what being a friend of the show gets you? The Opera Nationale de Paris has announced the recipients of this year's Gérard Mortier Awards. The namesake honor, an award for a lifetime achievement, goes to French director and Oscar nominee Ariane Mnuchkine. Mnuchkine, uh, thank you everybody, known for avant-garde productions in the opera and film world. The Mortier Next Generation Award, which is endowed with 30,000 euros, goes to German director Jeffrey During, who also receives a scholarship from the Wissenschaftskolleg in Berlin. That means the <laughs> workshop college in Berlin? The science Ger college. Ah, the science college in Berlin. I'm glad we cleared that up. In trade news, <laughs> Opera Steamboat has appointed Julie Makowski as the company's general director and CEO of the organization. Makowski previously worked at Florida Grand Opera as director of artistic administration and the head of the Young Artist Program. Exit stage right American mezzo-soprano and teacher Mildred Miller, who died at age 98, Miller debuted at the Met in 1951 in her signature role of Carabino, which she performed a record 61 times with the company. Over the course of nearly a quarter century at the Met, Miller sang 338 performances across 21 different roles. She went on to found Pittsburgh Festival Opera. And on this day, December 4th in 1660, it was the birth of French composer André Campra in 1667. Composer and teacher Michel Pignolet de Montclair, also French, was born. In 1693, it was the first performance of Marc-Antoine Charpentier's Midday in Paris. Uh, in 1774, it was the first performance of Giovanni Paisiello's Il Divertimento dei Numi, a one-act opera performed in Naples. In 1816, Gioacchino Rossini's Otello premiered also in Naples. In 1872, it was the first performance of Le Coq's La Fille de Madame Angot, in Brussels. Nellie Melba made her debut as Lucida Larimore in New York City on this day in 1893. 1909 saw the first performance of Hermano Volferrari's The Secret of Susanna. In 1920, it was the first performance of Korngold's Die Tote Stadt in Hamburg. 1927, potentially, saw the birth of American tenor Richard Casilli in DC. In 1938, it was the birth of mezzo-soprano Yvonne Minton in Australia, in Sydney, Australia. British soprano Lillian Watson was born in London in 1947. In 1949, Luigi Dalla Piccola's I Prigioniero uh, was performed uh, on the radio in Turin, probably the Italian Rai. 
And on this day, December 4th in 1954, it's the first performance of Ildebrando Pizzetti's La Figlia di Giorgio, also in Naples. And that is your two-minute drill. Just a little bit of Renee Fleming in one of her signature arias. I mean, she might be the best around when it comes to that aria. From the Todestadt, Marietta's lead, uh, Gluck das Meer, Fairly, whatever it's called. Uh, that was, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, probably, that was from the 2009 uh, gala from the Met, uh, the 125th anniversary of the Met. She's in great company with those 2023 Kennedy Center honorees. I wonder what they talk about, like, when they're waiting in the wings before they go on. Like, Billy Crystal. Like, they have nothing in common, you're saying? Like, <laughs> who am I to say what they have in common or what they don't have in common? I just wonder what they what they talk about. Uh, you know Dionne Warwick is holding court. She is directing traffic. <laughs> she is telling everybody what's what. Against Queen Latifah? Oh, absolutely. Queen Latifah will bow to Auntie Dion. Listeners, <laughs> this isn't what we're supposed to talk about in the talk back, but if you could do yourself a favor today, follow Dion Warwick on social media. Do it. Do it on Twitter. Do it on Instagram. You will not be sorry. The photograph of all of them together with their honoree, uh, um, what are they called? Sashes, the little rainbow things that they mm-hmm. have on with the medallions on them. Dion's in the front row and with her gown, she's wearing house shoes. Amazing. <laughs> so climate change activists interrupting live performances of classical music, it's like a thing now, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, this this is the same this is the same organization that we've been hearing about. Um often Extinction uh, Rebellion. Yeah. E- yeah. Extinction Rebellion. It's kind of interesting too. I feel like you you hear about a lot of these things, but you almost never hear the name of the group. But they've done it enough now so that they are starting to be reported on. So, like, I guess it's working at least as far as brand recognition goes. They're essentially the Met of climate protesters, really. So yeah. true. Uh, huge brand <laughs> recognition. Uh, ju- just as controversial, uh, uh, I think that um, you know, I think they have certainly have a very good point with the. Um, you know, drawing attention to the urgency of the situation. Uh, I don't think a lot of the Met audience saw it that way based on the videos that you can find on Twitter. Um, There was a a very sort of uh, aggressive shouting down of the protesters. That's Um, so dumb. I don't uh, don't get that. I I, I will say, I appreciate the fact that they they, they, either someone on... Uh, Extinction Rebellion is an opera person or they did their research because they they found the point in the opera where Wolfram starts talking about a stream and that was their <laughs> cue to fur- unfurl the banners and, and say the stream is poisoned. I'd love to see their sort of like itemized annual budget which was like 
Metropolitan opera tickets in the lower <laughs> dress circle. You know, you know whose budget we're not going to see that much of is Bayreuth because they're cutting stuff left, right, and center, including their choristers. Oi, oi, oi. Transition win. It's hard to do a Wagner opera with less chorus. Let's be honest. Thank you. Yeah. Exactly. It's going to sound so anemic, you guys. I'm worried. Pathetic. How do you yeah. do that? I, d- I don't know how they just have to do the Wagner operas that don't have it. chorus, I guess. You know. Okay, so which would be not to put you. Uh, in it's the, uh, the first date. three. The first three. Um, the first D- three uh, ring cycle, right? right? Uh, I think Defane oh. actually has a chorus. I can't remember. It's been a long time. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is you know concerning. Um, Bayreuth has been kind of panicking recently. I think you, we've seen a lot of like. Desperate moves, pulling out the stops to bring Defane to the to the stage. Um, uh, I, you know, we we always talk about how jealous we are here in the states of all that the, that state subsidies. Um, but uh, maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be. At least it isn't for Bayreuth. So we'll see. I mean, this is a, this is one of those organizations that's so specific. Just Wagner. You know, yeah. just Wagner in this one specific space. There's only so much you can expand. There's only so much you can change. Um, so, yeah. And this, you know, it makes me a little bit sad. They need more choristers. Um, and, you know, the uh, Friends of Bayreuth being a little stingy. I'll say it. <laughs> so who, who's sad that um, uh, von Karajan's statue was taken down? <laughs> I mean, I don't think anybody. It's... <laughs> You know, I once you tell me someone's got ties to the Nazi party and it can be substantiated, I'm like, you know, I'm good. I don't need that anymore. <laughs> yeah. I'm okay without it. Uh, so, yeah, not a fan of that. What we are a fan of, Long Beach and Santa Fe, because they've got some new dollar the dollar transition bills. Right from Nazis transition to a friend of the show. <laughs> yeah, I, hopefully, this is, hopefully their money is not coming from Nazi gold. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, I mean, good on them though. Good on Long Beach. That's for a company that size to get that sort of a an endowment from you know yeah. the the trust of a longtime board member. That's that's yeah. really amazing. And that's game the, uh, Yeah, the, and it was interesting. The I did a little homework on the the Start Small Fund. It actually started as a global public COVID nineteen relief fund. Now that the pandemic is like effectively over, the focus of the funding is shifting to girls' health and education. And UBI, so it's really cool that they were able to uh, to sort of keep Santa Fe and this this Alto program under that. Mm. So thank you to Jack Dorsey for starting this. Lots well, of uh, money being thrown out and around by the uh, Paris Opera as well. The uh, Lifetime Achievement Award uh, for Aryan Mnushkin, who was one of the most brilliant late twentieth century avant garde directors in many fields, uh, including film, opera. Dance. I mean, she is up there with Pina Bausch, um, Peter Sellers, Peter Brook. All the Peters. Incredible. All the Peters. And, Pina, and Peters then Pinas, um, yeah. Jeffrey, Jeffrey <laughs> Durring as well, who I don't know, I had to look up and do a little research for. If, if, if he's the future of opera, the future of opera is pretty bright. He's done some amazing um, installation and, and wacky pieces. I will say this. There is no way that the Paris Opera would ever give a Gérard Mortier Award to an American. This is a European opera house. Ultimately, only That's European fair. directors are really on yeah. their radar. This is how George is, is uh, coping with not being nominated this year. I, I'm not sorry for me. <laughs> I'm sorry for Yuval Sharon. 
Sorry, and I mean Ball. that in absolute sincerity, right? Look, he's a friend of mine. He's a great Drink. director. He's a total visionary and genius, right? But he's he's not on this. He could never be on this list because it's so Eurocentric. One final note on these Kennedy Center honors. I know we've talked about them a lot, but there is going to be a telecast that happens. And I'm sure you guys have watched this before. So they have those tributes that come in for each of the folks. I can't wait to see who they put in the Renee Fleming tribute. I cannot wait to see what singers they pick. It's going to be so exciting. That really will be exciting. Let's wrap the show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good Call, Bad Call is our way to take you home, and we're going to start with Oliver Camacho. The episodes of The Gilded Age are not coming fast enough for me. Uh, (laughs) Yesterday's was such a heartbreaker. Um, If you haven't watched it, no spoilers, but uh, Cynthia Nixon will punch you in your stomach. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just an amazing performance by her. But uh, I'm excited about the Opera Wars, and I see that this is all where their season finale is already set up for uh, a great uh, showdown between the Academy and the Met. <laughs> Weston Williams. As, uh, if, as you're listening to this, you might be aware that Henry Kissinger recently died, which you are probably, you know, you probably have opinions about. And I, I, I probably, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to get too uh, political here, but, you know. Uh, hate, not, 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 not a nice guy. Uh, I think that, the, but I wanted to bring it up because the New York Times has an article, and this is always something that I'm so interested in whenever we talk about Nixon in China, because we forget that when Nixon in China came out, basically everyone in that opera, uh, at least on the American side, was still alive and could still see it. And famously, everyone gets a sort of a final aria moment. Uh, in that in that last ensemble, uh, except for Henry Kissinger, who is stuck in the bathroom, pr- presumably just pooping all the time, to give you a sense of John Adams and Alice Goodman's opinion of Henry Kissinger. But I think it's a really interesting article, genuinely entertaining and interesting about the historical context and the implications of doing a historical opera based on recent history. And I encourage you to check it out. Ashley Hardgrave. Additionally, in the climate change vein, uh, a questionable borderline bad call to the La Scala Orchestra for making their debut uh, during COP28 at the Dubai Opera House. Because what better way to really talk about the effects of climate change than to fly your entire orchestra from Italy to the United Arab (laughs) Emirates for a debut concert? We'll call it an ironic call. <laughs> don't, don't you have the sense that they're not going to get through their set until you know who interrupts it? I just, I don't, I can't. I, and they had some great singers with them, but also, no, friends, this is not the way. <laughs> I have a good call as well. Thanks to Amy in New York City that shared this with me. This is from the Gram of Insta. It mashes up classical music and sports in the perfect way possible. Take a listen. Do you mind giving us some insight onto your performance today? Yeah, no, first I want to give a shout out to the second violins. Like, we, we were all locked in in that first and second movement. It was fantastic. In the third movement, we as a section started to pull apart a little bit. But thankfully, the concertmaster was there to pull us all together. And that, that was a fantastic play by him. It, it would have fallen apart without him. Uh, the, the violas really showed up and played today. We had some questions during rehearsal, but they answered all those questions of today in the performance. And the cellos, of course, are just always a class act. So we're pretty happy with the result today, and we can't wait to see what we do next season. I don't think people really say the gram of 
Insta, but sure, you go George with that. George just sure. discovered the internet, so you'll have to bear with him. You know how George is? He's hip. He's hip. He's down with the he's, apps. He's got he the knows riz. what the yeah. eats do. <laughs> I carry. Okay, I carry. Mm. I think I know what that means. Hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Get your voice heard and find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on the Support the Team page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Thanks, Norm, for everything you do for us. Your creative consultant's Oliver Camacho, and your audio editor is Weston Williams. For co-host Ashley Hardgrave and our guest Maya Karani, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera with the house lights at 25%. We're back <laughs> with an all-new show next week when we go inside the huddle with Canadian-based John Relier. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, more Callus 100, and more Riz. <laughs> Join us.